I want you to reflect upon the salvation that God alone offers. It is so simple that even a child can believe, and yet think about it, it is so profound that it baffles the wise. This salvation is so inviting that whosoever will may come, and yet so offensive and humbling that the proud spurn it. Salvation so free that nothing can be done, and yet so costly that the ultimate price had to be paid. Salvation so liberating and transforming to the one who accepts it, and yet so despised and ridiculed by the one who rejects it. Salvation so believable and clear to those whose eyes have been opened, and yet so vain and confusing to those whose eyes have still remained blind. Salvation so absolutely essential to see us in our lost condition, and yet so unimportant to the one who remains in his lost condition. So it's no wonder the Apostle Paul would stay, would say this in his first letter to the Corinthian church, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Think about that. The the message of the gospel is indeed foolishness to those who are dying, who are rejecting it, and yet for we who have embraced it, It indeed is the power of the cross. Paul would follow that up with an additional thought in a second letter to the Corinthian church, that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, who the minds, the God of this age has blinded, that God has allowed even Satan to blind the minds of those who are unbelieving. Could I be so blunt with an observation as if you're going to say, no, you can't? Could I be so blunt with this observation that what ultimately unites and yet ultimately divides everyone living on this earth is one and only one issue, and it is the matter of salvation. That it is not our skin color that divides us, it is not our financial condition, it is not our family ancestry, it is not our geographical location, it is not a certain language that at the end of time when the sheep and the goats are separated and stand before God, there is only one thing that's going to matter, and it is your salvation. There will be a great divide that takes place one day in the future. And at that great divide, only one thing matters. It is your eternal standing before a holy God. It is not how well you did on your job on this earth. It is not how well you raised your kids. It is not how much time you volunteered in your community. It is not how kind and gentle you were to your neighbors. It is not what mark you left behind. Those are important, but they pale in comparison to your eternal standing, this matter of salvation. Revelation 20 affirms a rather sobering truth, for whoever's name was not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. Think about that. Is this morning your name in the book of life? And if not, you will be cast, according to Scripture, into the lake of fire. Can you understand why it is so absolutely important for you here this morning to make sure you've got this matter of your salvation down? That you walk not out of this building if you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior 
Because if you do not know him, you will hear this shocking statement at the end of your life when you stand before a holy God and he says to you, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. So this morning I want us to pause for two weeks on a very familiar passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Two verses, verses 8 and 9. Guess what? We'll cover in a whopping one of those this morning. And the next one, next Sunday. I want us to see this morning what is salvation. And then next week we'll look at what is not salvation. What is salvation? It uncovers itself in the opening several words of verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace. For by grace. You have been saved through faith. One of the most important announcements in all the Bible. Three essentials I want us to consider this morning. The first one flows from these first three words, for by grace, because when you and I truly understand our condition, that we entered this earth with a suit, an earth suit, and when we grasp the significance of our lowly earth suit, we will truly see the need for grace this morning. You and I need grace. We definitely need grace. Some think that we enter this world with a clean slate. And then whatever I do in my life is added to that slate, and then that slate determines which direction I go at the end of my life. Sounds wonderful. Others will say, well, that may or may not be true, but you know what? It doesn't matter until you reach a certain age. You know, when you're responsible enough, when you're accountable enough, and then that's really when it kicks in. Well, they may, those thoughts may be fantastically favorable to our feelings. It may be soothing to our soul, but they don't necessarily have a biblical basis. Romans 5 asserts that just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Two chapters earlier in Romans 3, it says this, There is none righteous, no, not one. That is a sobering statement. There is none righteous, no, not one. <laughs> that we do not sin and become sinners. Instead, we sin because we are born sinners. The act of our sinning only validates and affirms this reality that we enter this world as sinners. No thanks to Adam and Eve, sinning in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, and then therefore passing that nature on to all of us, for all have sinned and fallen short. It is a fact that you and I cannot but sin when we enter into this world, that that is our spiritual DNA, that it is fallen, this nature that we have as we are born into this world. It's why the Old Testament prophet Isaiah could say this, but we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are but filthy rags. That everything you and I try to set our hand to, the moment that we are born, everything, every good work we do, Isaiah would say, is but filthy rags. David, the shepherd boy turned king, said this about his very own birth. Listen to what David says about his own birth. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Do you hear that? This is David saying, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. David is not announcing that he's the product of some adulterous relationship. Instead, he is acknowledging he was born a sinner. That his parents were sinners, their parents were sinners, and all it tracks back to Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, and, and so too we. So David is saying, I was born in sin because I was birthed by sinful parents, and thus I have inherited a sinful nature. Consequently, Romans 3 adds even more disturbing news. There is none who seeks after God. No one seeks after God. Because man is sinful and unrighteous, he desires not a sinless, righteous God. Opposites do not attract. Unholy people do not draw near to a holy God. The prophet Isaiah further describes our sinful condition that all we like sheep have strayed away, gone away. We have turned everyone to his own way. Have I encouraged you enough yet? Do you see the utter hopelessness of our condition? That we cannot candy coat it. That we cannot just say, you know, we're okay, we're all okay. God loves us, he has a plan. I'm doing okay. I'll get there. Isn't that baby an angel? The Bible tells us something entirely different. Because we turn from the things of God and we desire not the things of God. So God must do something. God must intervene and God did. And he came here to this earth because we had no desire to come to him. So he comes to us. John chapter 6 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That God the Father must draw us to him that we cannot draw near to him first. Do you see the weight going on here as we enter into this world? That this drawing of God encapsulates this amazing act of God in these opening three words of Ephesians 2.8, for by grace, for by grace, were not for grace what a terrible ordeal you and I would be in this morning. But it is by grace. It is by grace that God extends grace to those who are perishing. He throws out the life preserver as we are drowning in our sin, and it's called grace. Grab hold of this grace. Since we have no desire to draw near to God in our sinful state, he draws near to us. He reaches out to us. He bestows grace upon us. Here's the first essential of what salvation is. It is undeserved. That's grace. Grace is giving to us what we do not deserve. In our unrighteous, lost, depraved condition, we certainly do not deserve to be noticed, blessed, redeemed, and yet this is what our great God does. He shows mercy. He shows grace to us. He extends this offer of grace to us. The hymn writer catches the essence of this grace 
when he says, wonderful grace of Jesus reaching to all the lost. By it I have been pardoned, saved to the uttermost. Chains have been torn asunder, giving me liberty, for the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. This is the grace of our Lord that extends to you and to me and is poured onward to us, even though we are undeserving of it and unmerited of that favor. The grace of God, it always accomplishes that which he ordains. And what does he ordain? Our salvation. Notice the next phrase, for by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. Grace deposits God's favor upon you and me, and in so doing, breathes life into our deadened soul. What you and I could not do spiritually as a lifeless individual, he did. Think about the contrast between a benevolent God and an unresponsive humanity. Remember, we cannot respond. There is nothing in us that draws us near to God, and so he draws near to us. He in his benevolence and his grace draws near to us. John Newton captures that thought when he says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved. We don't like to hear these words, a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. This is the grace of God that has been deposited on humanity's heart. We can do nothing in our sinful state, so God does what only he can do. And so by his grace, he transforms us. And he takes us from this hopeless kingdom of darkness and places us, translates us into the glorious kingdom of his light. And so the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 says this, You have been saved. You have been saved. The Greek tense of that verb, saved, denotes this is a done deal. It's done. It's happened once and for all. And that's all that's needed. And even though it's a past event, it continues to have effect and consequence and benefit in the present and into the future. So here's this salvation, a done deal, one-time, good-for-a-lifetime miracle in the believer. And yet you will hear some that will tell you, well, can't you lose your salvation? Isn't that something that at some point in time that you can relinquish? And I would certainly agree with some who have that thought. If you yourself contributed somehow, some way to your salvation, if you earned it, deserved it, worked for it, then what you earn and work for, you can also lose. You ever lost something? Yes. Something you work for and then you can't remember, where did I put that? Where did I place that? That's us. We're constantly losing things. And I'm finding the older I get, You know what's coming next, right? The more I do forget. And the things I used to make funny of, fun of, man, look at that. Look at that woman. She has her glasses on a necklace around her neck. Like, why does she do that? Well, because you, you know, she'll misplace them. We constantly are losing things, which is why salvation is what God keeps. 
God keeps us. We don't keep him. This is the entirety of our salvation. It is God's gift to us. He grants it to us by his grace. And by his grace, you are saved once and for all. Done deal. Others will say something to the fact, well, don't I need to keep going to the cross? Don't I need to keep asking him to save me? Don't I need to, you know, weekly or, you know, when I go to camp every year and I recommit my life and I get resaved and all that, do I need to keep on doing that because it really feels good? I ask this, how many times did Jesus Christ go to the cross? Once for all. And when we think we need to keep getting saved, that cheapens the grace. It cheapens the cross. Where our Savior died once for all, it is a done deal because of grace. It's why Jesus Christ could do what no other priest could do in the Old Testament, where the priest continually came to the altar, offer up the sacrifice, keep offering up sacrifices because the people kept sinning so the priest could never sit down. Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he offers up his life and then, according to Hebrews 1, he sits down. It's done. It's a done deal. I've paid it all. Rest in the work of the cross that is once for all. This is the way to eternal life. So how long does this salvation last? Is it just good for a certain period of time, you know, until I lose my salvation or commit a really bad sin? No, once again, that's not what the scriptures teach us. You have been saved. It is once for all. It is a done deal. Here's the second essential of what salvation is. It is unalterable. It cannot be changed. It is permanent. What God does, he does forever. When you are saved, you are adopted once for all into the family of God as one of his own special people. This is a salvation that is unfailing. It's permanent. It depends not on you or on me, but on our God. And our God offers this permanence by grace of our salvation. When David committed rather atrocious sins against God, and let me tell you that any sin is atrocious against God, There's not a hierarchy or a ranking of sin. But when David himself sinned before God, he didn't lose that relationship with God. He he lost the intimacy with God. It's why he says to God as he's praying his prayer of repentance, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's not my salvation. I don't deserve it. I can't work for it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because when we sin, we lose that joy. But we don't lose that relationship. We lose that fellowship, that intimacy with our God. So what about you this morning? Where do you stand this morning? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And I don't mean, have you raised a hand one time? Did you sign a card? Did you pray a prayer? Did you walk an aisle? I'm not saying that. Those are, can be dangerous signs 
of thinking you've done something outwardly that never took root inwardly. This morning, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you acknowledged, I have sinned, I need a rescue, Jesus Christ is the rescuer, I believe. And by grace, you will be saved. Some may say, well, what about someone who kind of makes that decision and trusts in Jesus Christ, and then they walk away from the faith? Isn't that proof that they lost their salvation? You know, they were, they were here, and they were here for maybe months or years, and then one day they just abandoned everything. Isn't that proof? Isn't that evidence they lost their salvation? We might say something to them. They probably never had salvation. But we don't even have to answer it on our own merits. The Apostle John leans in and he writes this first letter called 1 John and he addresses this very situation of some who were with the body and then no longer were with the body. He says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In a few words, what's John saying? He's asserting that those who are truly and sincerely saved will truly continue on and persevere. Yes, there may be times and there will be times on this earth when you and I stray from the faith. When you and I are not where we ought to be. Who among us is without sin? In such a case, the believer has not lost his salvation, but he is losing his fellowship, his intimacy, his joy with the Lord, and yes, his testimony with the world, before the world. In such a case, this Christian who is straying from the truth is potentially making dangerous decisions. And guess what? We believers, what are we doing as a believer straying from the truth? Are we like, can't believe that person. That would never be me. I wish someone would go after them. I wish someone would be concerned about that individual. Why doesn't someone do something? And God's like, uh, why don't you do something? In fact, guess what? Scripture leans in again. And scripture says, hey, when one of us is straying from the truth, guess what? We have an obligation. James 5 gives rather pointed counsel, brethren, this is what James writes, brethren, that tells us he's writing to believers, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, okay, a believer wandering from the truth, and someone turns him back, goes after him, turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner, because that believer is living like a sinner, living like an unsaved person at times, from the error of his way that he will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins, that the one who is in Christ will remain in Christ, but if he strays from this path of truth for a period of time, God might just intervene and take that believer home early. Early from our vantage point, not in God's omniscience. But James 5 asserts this reality that if you and I see a fellow believer straying, we must go after them. 
They're part of the family. They're part of the body. We must go after them and plead with them to return to the truth. We have that responsibility. God, he adopts us into his family. It's an unalterable relationship, a permanent truth that you are saved. It is a done deal. It's why John can say in chapter 10 of that great shepherd passage, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Anyone have a set of keys? Anyone have a set of keys? Could you toss me your keys there? Uh, That's too many keys. Anyone have a, a, a little smaller? Here, quickly. You all drove here this morning. I would think one of you have a car key or something to get into. Just toss it up here. Toss it nice and heavy. All right, now, now check this out. Thank you, Randy. I knew you were going to come to the rescue. So, all right, now picture... Really? <laughs> okay, so let's picture that this is you. Okay, we'll go with it. It's winter. So let's picture this is you. Now, what is John saying in his passage? John is saying, listen, when you're a believer, that done deal this permanent relationship that God has with us because of grace through his son, that you are in the hand of the son, Jesus Christ. You're there. You're in his hand. John 10 continues. And I give them eternal life, and they shall neither, never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. No one, no thing is going to snatch you out of the Son's hand. And then he goes on, and my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. What's going on here is that you have the security of being in Christ, the Son, and the Father says, and I got you covered too. It's a done deal. Salvation is unalterable. It's permanent. It's all by grace. It's what he's done for you. You're not keeping that relationship. He's got you. You cannot do anything that's going to enhance that relationship. It's done. Now what you and I can do and are blessed to do is obey. And then we bring joy. It continues. Verse 8. Here's the third essential of salvation, and it comes through these two words, through faith. Faith. Faith is the channel through which salvation comes. If we were to scan a short survey of the book of Acts, listen to this reality of faith and belief. Acts chapter 4, during the early ministry of Peter and John, here's a report that's given. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. They believed. Acts chapter 8. And asking to be baptized, Philip said to the eunuch, if you believe with all your heart, you may be. And the eunuch said to Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Belief. 
Acts chapter 9, Peter has healed Dorcas, and then this effect occurs, and it became known throughout all Joppa, Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. At Antioch, after Paul and Barnabas spoke the word, here's a scene that's described in Acts 13. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Hear that? And as many as had been appointed unto eternal life believed. Acts 13, 48. Acts 15, Peter stood up at the Jerusalem council and he declared this, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved Acts 16, in response to the question of the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Peter responds, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 18, at Corinth, this account is written, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. In order to believe, you must have faith. Does that sound strange? In order to believe, you must have faith. In order to believe, you must have faith. And we're going to talk next week, where does that faith come from? Because when you are given the faith, you will believe. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Romans 5 pictures it. The writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So faith is absolutely essential. And everything starts with faith, with saving faith. Thus, faith, if God is the true author of it, it's as easy as ABC. You see in your notes, admit your sins have separated you from a holy and just God. It all starts there. I must humble myself before a holy God, acknowledging, admitting that I am a sinner. I must see myself in my true condition before I will ever ask for a rescue. B, believe that Jesus Christ paid for your sins on the cross. Believe, and you will, if God has given you faith. C, confess with your mouth Jesus as Savior and Lord, and you will be saved. Admit, believe, confess, and you will be saved. Here's the third essential, if you haven't already got it. It is uncomplicated. It is simple and yet profound. It is uncomplicated. Admit, believe, confess, and you will be saved. So God has done his part. That's called grace. You know what remains for you and I to respond? Through faith. Have you responded this morning through faith? Do you know this Savior, Jesus Christ? Or have you continued to hear about this one? You know, I probably ought to do something about it. I don't know if I have done something about it, but I need to. Today's your day. Wait no longer. Admit, believe, confess. I want to share with you a true story. As a professional singer, it was not unusual to be asked to sing for a wedding. But it was a bit unusual to be asked to sing at the wedding of a millionaire. I knew the wedding would be picture perfect and was pleased to be able to participate. 
But when the invitation to the reception arrived, I knew it would be something exceptional. The reception was held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower. In case you're not familiar with that, it is the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. It was even more wonderful than I imagined. There were waiters wearing snappy black tuxedos who offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages for even the most discriminating taste. The atmosphere is one of grace and sophistication. About an hour of merriment, the bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. A satin ribbon which was draped across the bottom of the stairs was cut, and the announcement was made that the wedding feast was about to begin. The bride and groom ascended the stairs, and then the guests would follow. What a lavish event of which to be a part of. A gentleman with a lovely bound book greeted us as we reached the top of the stairs. May I have your name, please? I am Ruth Anna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy Metzger. The gentleman looked down at the book. He looked through the M's. He didn't seem to find our name. I spelled the name slowly and clearly to him. After searching throughout the book, the gentleman looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name is not here. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. Oh, there must be some mistake, I replied. I just sang. The gentleman calmly answered it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend this banquet. As I looked around the room, I briefly thought I would run across the hall and grab the bride and plead my case. But with a hundred guests on the steps behind us and Every place at the table signed according to the thoughtfulness of the choices of the bride and groom, I stood silent. The gentleman with the book motioned to a waiter, show these people to the service elevator, please. We followed the waiter past beautifully decorated tables laden with shrimp, whole smoked salmon, even gracefully carved ice sculptures. Adjacent to the banquet area was an orchestra, its members all dressed in dazzling white tuxedos, preparing to fill the room with beautiful music. We were led to the service elevator. We stepped in, and the waiter himself pushed G for garage. My husband, thoughtfully, did not say a word. Nor did I. As my husband drove out of the Columbia Tower garage, we both remained silent. After driving several miles in silence, my husband Roy reached over and gently put his hand on my arm. Sweetheart, what happened? And then I remembered. When the invitation came for the reception, I was so busy. I never bothered to return the RSVP. 
Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. As we drove on, I began to wept. I was not weeping because I had just missed the most lavish banquet of my life, but I was weeping because I suddenly knew what it will be like someday for people as they stand before the entrance of heaven, people who were too busy to respond to Christ's invitation to his heavenly banquet, people who assumed that the good things they had done, even perfect church attendance or singing in the choir, would be enough to gain entry to heaven, people who will look for their name in the book, in the Lamb's Book of Life, and not find it there, people who did not have time to respond to Christ's gracious invitation to have their sins forgiven. And then I wept again because I was so grateful that I had many years earlier received Christ as my personal Savior and be confident that my name is written in the most important book of all, the Lamb's Book of Life. So I ask... Is your name in the book? For by grace, you will be saved by faith. Let's pray. Father, sobering words, a strong reminder that we simply cannot continue to walk through life on our own merit. that the prophets of old and then we come into the New Testament they have the same theme. We are sinners. We're unrighteous. We cannot do anything. Every thought of our hearts is only evil continually. We're like sheep straying away doing our own thing but you came. You came. We did not desire you, so you came to us. We did not seek after you, so you sought after us. By grace. All by grace. By grace, we are saved through faith. So, Lord, for we who have made that most amazing choice to believe and have experienced the eternal life that comes with it. Lord, may we go and tell. May we go and share. May we look at each new day as an opportunity to declare the greatest news this world could ever hear, the cure that's eternal from all the ills that we face. And for those here this morning who have not once for all trusted in Jesus Christ alone, that today would be that day. Delay no longer. Today is that day. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And we pray this in your son's name. You have just finished listening to an audio recording of a sermon from Fellowship Baptist Church of Dublin, Ohio. 
For more information about our ministries or to support our missional efforts, please visit www.fbcdublin.org.